saw a blind a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was bo born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud, and with this, and with saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly knew him, isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they asked. He replied, the man you called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told them to go to Siloam. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. blind. The word of the Lord. You can be seated. And we'll dismiss our school-age kids to the back. by going with you and Mr. Crenshaw on the back. As they head back there, let me invite you to open uh, your Bibles to the passage that uh, Lily Claire just read in John chapter 9, if you haven't already, as we continue to go through the gospel of John. Um, this is an incredible, incredible passage. Uh, before we fully jump in, let me just uh, remind you of a few things. We're about to move into our Sabbath season um, so next Sunday, we will not be gathering as a faith family, but we'll be gathering uh, corporately, but we'll be gathering in a lot of different missional communities. Those are our kind of small groups that are spread uh, all over uh, Shreveport, Bossier, and Halton, and Blanchard, and all the other little places. So, um, so that'll, be, that'll be next week, so don't come here. We will not gather corporately next week. And it also starts this like rhythm of rest. The rest of the Sundays um, of the month of July will be fairly normal. We will not have our equipping hour at 9.30, giving some of those teachers uh, a break, and we'll hit that hard coming back in August. Um, you know, God has woven seasons of rest in our own schedules. We look at the life of Jesus, and he would depart early in the morning to spend time with the Father. This was spiritual rest, spiritual rejuvenation. God gave us the gift of an actual Sabbath one day a week that he would command the people of uh, the Hebrew people not to work. And that was so that they would remember, they would enjoy creation, enjoy the work of their hand, and they would remember that it's God who meets needs, not us working uh, nonstop. And so that was a gift of rest. And then every seven years, the Hebrew people was woven into their schedule. They would have um, even more uh, extended periods of rest. And so this is why we do this thing in July is we kind of just take a breath. It's not so that we would grow apathetic in the things of God. Um, some of you are still wearing your heart-to-heart -heart 100 days of summer. That was kind of the whole purpose of all summer is you have a little more relaxed uh, schedule that you try to connect to the heart of God. John 15, 9, just as the fathers love me, so I love you, remain in my love. Connect to the heart of God and that you would connect to the heart of your kids. Find ways to engage your kids, engage your neighbors, engage members of your family. Um, on a heart level, we move so fast 
We don't even know what's going on in the lives of our kids and the lives of our neighbors, the lives of our family. So uh, that's kind of thing. So take full advantage of that in the month of July to really connect to the heart of God and to um, the heart of those around you. John 9, I love this passage, as I said a minute ago. Uh, John gives us the reason, if you remember in John 20 and verse uh, 30, he gives us the reason that he wrote the gospel of John. He says this, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. So Jesus did a lot of miracles. Some of them, maybe even a few of the ones that he did are contained actually in the gospels. But these are written, John said, I've selected the ones that I selected out of all the ones that he did so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. And then by believing you may have life in his name. John says, I'm going to take out some of them that just kind of really show you the character of God as demonstrated through Jesus. Because they symbolize who Jesus is or the mission that he came to fulfill. And then he takes this entire chapter, the man who had been born blind. This is, this, he is a phenomenal character. I know I've kind of teased him out a little bit. Um, the very first sermon I ever preached on a stage in a church was John chapter 9. And it was kind of an easy win for me because I could just read the whole chapter. The, the chapter really speaks uh, even for itself. But as we read it, I want you to kind of identify um, the three different groups of people here in this passage. They're the spiritually confused, or maybe the spiritually ignorant that we would say, and they learn a, a lesson about pain and suffering. There's the spiritually blind. These are the Pharisees you're going to see, and they're, they're going to learn a lesson. I don't know if they can learn it. Jesus teaches them a lesson about spiritual blindness. I don't know how well they learn it. And then there's a third group, um, the spiritually enlightened, this man whose life had literally been transformed. So let's just dive in. It starts um, with the disciples leading the witness a little bit with Jesus. As he passed by, he saw a man born blind from birth. So you get that, born blind, has never seen and his disciples asked him, asked Jesus the teacher, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Again, they're leading the witness because they give Jesus two options. And I don't know if you've learned, it's not good to give Jesus multiple choice questions because he's going to answer in a way that, you know, you know, you know, what, you know what, what do you want me to do, Jesus? You want me to give a dollar or two dollars? And he says, no, give sacrificially. Don't give Jesus the multiple choice because he's going to choose, he's going to write in the answer no matter what you, that's what they've done here. Jesus, who sinned? And it shows us, right, that even the disciples in the beginning, although they're following Jesus and they have believed and follow, and I think that's a sign of real faith, they're confused. They, they still have some bad theology. You know, it is possible to be a Christian to be a growing Christian, a maturing Christian, and still have some bad theology in there. And this is why the word of God is such a beautiful thing to us. Let, let, let me just be real honest about my own self. I, it's, it's, if it's not every day, it's certainly once a week that I'm reading the Bible and it is confronting some misconceptions that I had about who God is and what he's here to do. 
And every time I see it, I have to repent of my little box that I try to shove God in in a way that I could understand. And I have to say, God, you're God, and I am so glad that you're God and I'm not. And this is what's happening even with the disciples here. They're expressing this bad theology, but it's, you know, it's, we can't really fault them. It's a worldly understanding of pain and suffering. And it permeates our culture today. We use the word karma to describe it. You know, you gossip at work and then get a flat tire on your way home. And you're like, oh God, you got me. Right? Karma. It's not a theological framework at all. It's a worldly understanding. And these people have been walking with Jesus, set forth this kind of trapping question to Jesus, his own disciples, who sinned? What is the reason a person would be born blind? Did he sin? Now, this is, a, this is an interesting question because how in the world could this man have sinned if he was born blind from birth? And there were some Jewish rabbis thinking and expressing these views that you could actually sin in the womb. Before you came out, you could sin and the judgment of God would be on you in the womb and you would be born blind and you can see how this is such a bad theology. There's this myth in, in the world that if you have a hard life, then it's your fault. Maybe it's your parents' fault or it's God's fault. It's your fault, it's someone else's fault, or it's God's fault. When bad things happen, isn't that the first thing that we do? We want to blame somebody. Lord, why me? Lord, why them? How could you do this to me? This isn't just here in Luke 13. A group of people are killed when randomly this tower fell on them. And the disciples asked them there, Jesus, were they worse sinners because that happened? Or you can go all the way back in the book of Job. What did Job's friends just assume as Job had the worst day of his life, as he lost his kids and he lost his fortune and he lost his even, even his own health? What did they say? Job. Man, you've got to have sinned against God to deserve such a thing. And this is our way of internally wrestling with the consequences of sin. We want to know who to blame. Even in this past year of COVID, everybody gets so mad because there's no one to blame. We want to we blame somebody. Please show us somebody that we can blame for this. Because we're walking through the consequences of sin and it irritates us that we cannot blame. Oftentimes when a family experiences the death of a child, the divorce rate between that married couple is exorbitantly more than the normal average divorce rate because they face a tragedy and they don't know who to blame. So we blame ourselves, we blame someone else close to us, or we blame God. And none of those are the right answer. We're all going to walk through pain and difficulty. That is the result of just sin in the world. The problem with this kind of thinking is one, it creates tremendous pride on the part of those people who are having a good life. 
the people who are killing it, who've not suffered this tremendous heartache of some way, it creates this incredible pride in their life. And you see this in the Pharisees in the passage in a minute, because they're thinking, I must be better than all the rest of you because I was not born blind. Or you even remember the heart of the Pharisees when they entered the temple in Luke's gospel, and he's like, uh, the Pharisees praying, God, I am so glad I'm not like these sinners over here. You see the pride and arrogance this is what this thinking leads to. It creates tremendous pride on the part of people who are having a good life. Second, it's not true to reality. If you look hard enough, you're going to find plenty of good people, great people, godly people who have extremely hard lives. Or you can find plenty of terrible, wicked people who die fat and happy at an old age in their sleep. And yet they're far from God. The point is this, we have to look at reality before we make this kind of error in theological judgment. Was it his sin or his parents? Finally, this kind of thinking is incredibly cruel to the suffering person. The last thing Job needed, can you imagine such heartache? Losing all your kids and all your fortune and your way of life and just, see, just sitting in the misery of that moment and you bring your friends alongside you for some encouragement, and what do they say? Joe, bro, you got sin in your life, man. You got, you got to get right with God. And bring, even his own wife, what did she say? Joe, you should just curse God and die. Just as an aside, when someone's going through a traumatic moment, they don't need your advice. They really don't. They don't, even, they don't even need you to show up and, and remind them that God's going to work this out for good. You know what they need? They need your presence and they need your prayer. That's what they need. I'm a guy who likes to have the right words in the right moment. But when people are suffering, there are no right words other than I'm here. How can I help? These disciples, as they phrase this question to Jesus, are spiritually confused. God's perfect design was a world without suffering. Before sin entered the world, there was no suffering. But when sin entered the world, everything stopped working properly. Everything. Creation groaning for the restoration. Our lives inflicted with sin. The pain of, of, of all the, the, the consequences of sin all around us. So in a sense... We're all under the curse of sin in a general way. But not every pain and suffering is God's judgment on us in the moment in the particular way. Jesus rejects this notion that your individual suffering is directly connected to your individual sin. Again, you know, you say bad things about your boss and uh, you go home and your hamster's dead. That's not, that's not how God, God works. In general, sickness and brokenness is part of the broken and fallen world that we live in. It's part of our fallout of a collective rebellion against God. And in that sense, difficulty and pain is indiscriminate. This is the point that Jesus is going to make here in the next few verses. But there are a few occasions, if we make a small caveat, in the New Testament where sickness is a result from sin. For example, Jesus warned... Uh, the invalid that he healed in John 4, see, you're well again, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. 
Got this implication that maybe he had done something. Or in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul cautions the church to examine your heart before you participate in the Lord's Supper or communion because some have gotten sick because they didn't do so. Sickness as a result of their sin. But instances of sin-prompted sickness are meant to provoke repentance in us. So it's a fatherly discipline and then that could be lifted. But those are some really rare occasions in the New Testament that speaks towards that. Most of it is just the general effect of living in a broken world. Again, Jesus is going to dismiss their multiple choice answer. He didn't play their game at all. Jesus answered in verse 3, it was not this man that sinned or his parents, but the works of, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So what is Jesus' answer? Jesus, who sinned? It's not about the sin. What does he tell us? One, that it's mysterious. And two, God still has work to do. When you walk through pain and difficulty and suffering... It's mysterious. You may never know on this side of heaven why that happened. But friend, please know that God is working to make every bad day, every headache work together for your good and for his glory. So when you walk through difficulty, remember that God is not far. This is the thing that Job learned even as he walked through the suffering that he walked through. That God was there. And Job kept trying to figure out why and why. He kept asking God why. And God never ultimately told him why. You know what he told him? He said, Job, where were you when all of this was made? He just said, listen, that, that was his way of saying, Job, I got, I got this under control. I am at work in ways that you will never see. So spiritually ignorant. Here's the second group that's spiritually blind. Jump down to verse 13 with me and you're going to see how blind this, uh, this group is. We'll come back and hit that verse, those verses in between. Verse 13. Jesus had, had healed the man evidently. Um, and so all the neighbors are seeing him and astonished and they brought the they brought to the Pharisees this man who had formerly been blind. He'd been healed. His life has changed. And it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Of course, that irritated them. So the Pharisees asked him again how he had received sight. And he said to them, I love this dialogue. This guy is just so sarcastic. It is just, he put mud on my eyes and I washed it and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not even keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. And they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he's opened your eyes? He said, I guess he's a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his, they, they, could, they couldn't wrap their mind around what, what exactly had happened. So they didn't, they didn't believe him. And so they're going to call his parents in. They called the parents of the man who had received his sight. And they asked him, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he see? And his parents answered, we know that this is definitely our son. And we were there when he was born blind. But how he sees, we don't know. 
nor do we know who opened his eyes. I love this. Why don't you ask him? He's an adult. He'll speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For The Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he's going to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, ask him. He is of age. So for the second time, they called the man who had been born blind, and they said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know is that though I, have bl- I was blind, now I can see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered again, I've told you already. And you wouldn't listen. Do you want to hear it again? Do you see this group? You can see their spiritual blindness from our perspective. As it dealt with the Pharisees, the most religious, the most educated, the keepers of the law, the shepherd of the people's hearts that Jesus was so angry with that he would accuse them as a brood of, of, you're a bunch of snakes because you do all the right things on the outside, but the inside is what God sees. And the inside is wasting away. It's corrupt, full of dead men's bones. There's a stench of death within you, Jesus would label at these Pharisees. The point is he's trying to tell them and is going to say even at the end of this chapter is that they're spiritually blind. Just as the feeding of the 5,000 symbolized Jesus' ability to deal with our spiritual hunger, he's the ultimate bread of life, the healing of this man born blind shows the ability of Jesus to deal with our spiritual blindness. Jesus is using these as an illustration to make not just a physical point, but to convey a spiritual truth. What is spiritual blindness? Well, before we get there, we first have to acknowledge that there is such thing as a sight that's not literal sight. I'll give you an example. For over a decade, I was a youth pastor before I ever had kids of my own. And it was during that decade that I had the best parenting advice because I had no idea what I was talking about. It was all theory. Have you ever learned that? People who can just communicate to you in theory, but they've never done it, and so they're not to be trusted. Like a skinny chef. We don't trust the skinny chef because you you don't eat anything anyway, right? I remember Ashley and I were at a, uh, a youth conference, and we're sitting in the middle section. The back row of a middle section is out behind us, and in front of us, there was a family who had three little kids, And uh, this was like way back in 2006 probably, and not every kid was born with a device in their hands. But the kids in front of us all had devices, little Game Boys or whatever, and headphones. And they were playing away while the parents attentively listened to the speaker at the conference. And I leaned over to Ashley and said, our kids will never do that. They're gonna sit like good kids in church and they're gonna listen. Fast forward to I have kids, and I'm like, where's an iPad? I will, I will cut off my leg for an iPad. Can we get this kid an iPad so they'll be quiet just for a second, right? I had learned. I had, I had received perspective, a new sight that was not literal, a new perspective. 
I guess the lesson of that story is um, if you don't have kids, don't give parenting advice to other people. Again, just show up and be helpful, right? Paul uses the phrase spiritually dead in Ephesians 2. Physically alive, but spiritually dead. Because of the sin that's in our lives, we're blind, we're dead, we're unable to see reality. Dead in your trespasses and sins, he says in Ephesians 2. So then what does it mean to have spiritual sight? Until the Holy Spirit opens the eyes of your heart, you can't see spiritual reality. Mostly in these two categories, the depth and depravity of your own sin and the beauty of the grace of God. Now, even before Christ and those who don't follow Christ, you might ask them about sin and they might say, you know what, there is occasionally there are times that I sin. There's occasionally times I do wrong, but they have not internalized that to realize that I am a sinner in need of forgiveness and grace. Such a great example here. Get back in, in, in verse 24. And, and see the lack of awareness in the, in the Pharisees' lives. Look at their spiritual blindness. Verse 24, they called him in a second time, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, I now see. They said to him, what did he do to you? He answered, I told you already. You wouldn't listen. You want to hear it again. Do you want to become his disciples? You can hear the sarcasm. I love it. And they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't even know where he comes from. They didn't know where he came from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not even know where he comes from. And yet he opens my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, then God listens to him. And they're agreeing, yes, yes, yes. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man that had been born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. But they don't hear it. Verse 34, they answered him, you were born in utter sin and you would try to teach us and they cast him out. The truth is so close and yet so far they missed it. The Pharisees are spiritually blind. They don't see their own sin, their pride of arrogance. Jesus does this work right in front of them and they still don't believe in their own minds they don't wrestle with their own sin. They don't see their need for God's grace and his mercy. They just can't see it. How do they respond? They just respond by blaming. They just, they're just name calling. You're the one who's in utter sin. You're the one that needs to get out of here. You're the one who doesn't have his life together. I told Adam Brazier this morning, as I was reading this, you know, if you were here a couple weeks ago, Adam gave a little testimony about God had rescued him. He's been with us a long time. Adam's been with us basically since the start of the church, and he's been doing the things and showing up, and he and I have probably had a thousand conversations over the past decade about what it means to follow God. 
But there was this spiritual haze and there was a spiritual blindness that he just couldn't see until God gave him eyes of faith. Friend, if we're not careful, we'll be Pharisees. We'll think that this faith that we have is something that we earned ourselves. It's something that we did because of our intellect or because of our hard work or our lineage. Even them, what are they bragging on? Oh, we're disciples of Moses. Can you tell me people I've talked to that say, oh, you know, my dad was a pastor or my, my grandfather was a Methodist preacher. And we, that, that, that's where they, they brag in that, but not in their relationship to Jesus Christ. When you start to see spiritually, you realize how deep the sin really goes. It's not sin that I commit occasionally. It's the depth of sin. Even, even the good things I've done in the past, now I see them with sin-tinged wrappers. Like, like it's just all around them. It's just in the midst of even the good things I was doing for some other purpose, not really to give myself to someone else. I was doing it so that I would benefit the depth and corruption of our motives. When you start to see spiritually, you shift from, hey, I occasionally sin to I am a sinner in need of grace. When you start to see spiritually, you realize that you're not in control of your life. That your old life is driven by fear and lust and a desire to control things. But if we really get honest, we didn't have control over any of those things. When you start to see spiritually, you see the beauty of grace. Not just in an abstract way, you saw a movie that displayed grace or mercy or forgiveness, but you begin to see it as it matches. It's, it's the healing balm for the sin and depravity of your whole, your, your entire, I've got this major sin problem. And yet the grace of God is the remedy for the sin problem that I have. God's grace is a miracle. Jesus has this interaction with the Pharisees, with Simon. You remember he goes over there for dinner and they're eating and Simon's thinking bad things in his own mind after the lady comes in and of a bad reputation and pours the expensive perfume on Jesus' feet and with her tears she wipes her feet and dries them. You remember the end of that passage Jesus says, he who has been forgiven much loves much. People who see with eyes of faith, people who have been given this gift of faith, they love much because they understand the depravity, the condition they were in in which they were forgiven. Jesus says in verse 39 of this passage, For judgment I came, he's talking to this, these Pharisees, for judgment I came into the world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things as he was talking to disciples, heard them. And they said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Are you saying that we're blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt but now you say, hey, look at us. We're the ones who see. 
Jesus says, your guilt remains. He, he says this in a very um, Yoda, Star Wars way. He's, he's really saying two things. First, that there are brilliant people out there with great intellect, great authors, people who are the most brilliant. But when it comes to the gospel, those are the ones who are the most disadvantaged because they rely on their own intellect and brilliant to try to figure out grace. They rely on their own pride. It's their pride that keeps them from Jesus. If I'm so bright and so strong and so gifted and so blessed, then surely if I found a way to start and be successful, start a business, if I found a way to uh, navigate all the difficulties of this world, if I found a way to make a place for me in life, then certainly I can figure out a way to make myself right with God. That's why Jesus said is it's really hard for for rich people to get into heaven because they, can, they think they can do it on their own. Second thing he says is the deepest blindness is blindness to your own blindness. The only blindness that has no remedy is blindness to your own blindness of thinking you've got everything figured out. They can't get help because they'll never lower themselves low enough to ask for it. Man, I wish you, we had time for me to tell you story after story that breaks this pastor's heart. As you sit down and counsel with a couple who just won't humble themselves. We do the whole counseling thing. What does the Bible say? Well, the Bible says this. Well, then this is what you should do. But I'm not going to do that, Pastor. I'm going to do what I want to do. Blindness to their own blindness. Jesus says here, for those people, your guilt remains. Salvation and rescue is right in front of them. And they won't ask for help. Let's look at that third group real quickly. It's really just one person in that group. This is the spiritually enlightened. This is the man born blind. Verse 35, we skipped over this part earlier. Jesus had heard that they had cast him out and having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? The man who'd been born blind answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Such a short but powerful and dramatic scene. Worshiping the wrong thing reveals your blindness. What is the thing that if it was taken from your life, would make you so utterly miserable and without hope that you couldn't see yourself moving on and you'll know what you worship. What you worship is what you give your life to. What you worship is what you make first priority. What you worship is what your schedule follows and what your uh, checking account follows. That's what you worship. 
And we can play all the games in here, friends, by saying, you know what? I, I, you know, I worship the Lord, but I do what I want to do. No, you, you don't worship the Lord. You worship yourself. You worship your comfort and your desire and your pleasure. You worship what you want to worship. And that is not worshiping Jesus. Worshiping the wrong thing reveals your blindness, but worshiping the right thing is the only thing that cures your spiritual blindness. Or it's evidence that you've really received spiritual sight. Look at the steps this guy made. A few things I think that go hand in hand with a real step of genuine faith. First, there's a step of faith. We covered it in the reading, but, but not early on. Go back to verse six and seven. Verse five, sorry, Tim, verse five. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus keeps talking about this. Having said these things, he spit in the ground and made mud with his saliva. And then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. So he went and washed and came back seeing. When I love how Jesus healed, healed them differently every time. And you know why I think he did that? Because if he just did it one way, we would worship the method. And we would say, that's the method. But if you've ever noticed, God works so differently in every situation. So that we would worship the person of Jesus and not the method by which he brought these supernatural acts. But two, I want you to see this real step of faith that Jesus could have healed him in the moment. Jesus, pretty unconventional way of spitting in the ground, making mud pies and putting it in. I would think if Hudson, my, you know, eight-year-old could heal someone, that's how he would do it. Spit in the ground, make a little mud pie, wipe it on someone's eyes. This is what Jesus did. And then he said, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And the man, still being blind, now with saliva cake mud pies in his eyes, has to feel his way to said pool, wash in the pool, and then he came back seeing. When we follow Christ, there is always a step of faith. We don't see every step. We commissioned Sweet Caroline last, last, last week to go and serve in Kansas City. I love that. And there's a lot of steps of faith that she doesn't know how it's going to be and what it is and I'm going to miss camp and I'm going to miss summer and what, what's this and am I equipped? There are so many unanswered questions. It's a step of faith. And every time, every time that I read through scripture that God used someone greatly for his kingdom and his glory required a step of faith. He didn't lay the whole thing out. He told Mary, hey, you're going you're gonna to give birth to the baby. Whoa, Lord, I got, I got, uh, I got all these questions. Um, I'm not married. I've never been intimate with a man. How we, you know, how am I going to produce the son of God? This, I mean, a zillion questions. And God's like, it's okay. I just want you to follow me. Or you think about just, I mean, they're literally hundreds. I love, I love the story of Gideon. He just keeps taking things away from Gideon. He just keeps removing people. He whittles the army down, but how they drink in the water. And they're already outnumbered. 
We find out that God is no great general when it comes to our own war tactics. Let's get rid of them. Let's get rid of them. Let's get rid of them. Especially get rid of the people who drink the water wrong. Man, we do not want to have those people trying to shoot a bow and arrow. No. Let's get rid of them. Let's get rid of them. Then you finally get the best of the best. We got the Navy SEALs. We're going to follow Gideon in. We're going to attack the enemy. And he's like, wait, 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 wait. No weapons. Let's just use a couple horns and some lanterns. Can you imagine that conversation with Gideon? Uh, Gideon to the Lord. Lord, I have followed you every step of the way until now. But there's no way we can go and fight these people with a bunch of trumpets. Why did God do that? So Gideon would trust in the power of God and take a literal step of faith. When you see with the eyes of faith, you respond by taking steps of faith. Hebrews eleven six 6 says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. What step of faith is God asking you to take even today? If this man refused the step of faith, he would still be a man born blind with mud pies in his eyes near the temple. He would have never been healed because he would never took the step of faith. How many of us have not seen God do the supernatural work that he wants to do in and through our lives because we stopped with a fearful chasm between us and a real step of faith that we couldn't see the other side? Oh, Lord, I, I just can't do it. And we're good at giving the excuses of why we can't do it. I just feel him as a loving father saying, you can trust me. Look at the history. The step of faith. There's this combination of belief and worship. I love this. That his belief leads to worship. The man doesn't just say, there at the end that, that I believe. Look at in verse 38 again. In verse 37, he says, uh, you have seen him, Jesus says. And it is, I, I, I'm Jesus, I'm speaking to you. And he says, verse 38, Lord, I believe and he worshiped him. This combination of belief, cognitive assent, I believe that you are the son of God. I believe that you're the Messiah. I believe this, but not just believe because scripture says even the demons believe and they tremble. It's not just, but remember last week in John 8, all the Jews believed. There were many of the Jews that believed them, but they did not want to follow him. That's why in just a few verses, they move from belief to throwing stones at trying to kill him. But real faith, real eyes of faith have a combination of belief, believing the right things about who God is and what he's come to do and worship, belief that leads to worship. And if I can be real honest with you, I believe this is a real problem in the church. I believe this is a real problem in our church. We have the belief. We don't want to worship. We want to believe all the right things and then act however we want to act. We want him to be savior and punch the ticket to get into heaven one day but we do not want him to be the Lord of our lives. You know, when you invite a guest into your house, they're, they're, they're the acceptable places that they can go, the living room, the kitchen, the hall bathroom. 
Maybe a guest bedroom if they want to look in there. It's kind of weird, but okay. But don't go in my room. And don't you dare look in my closet. Nobody looks. I don't even want to look in my closet. That's like, that's like you know, three times removed. And this is how, this is how we operate in the church. Lord, I want to give you Sundays. And I want to sing the good songs. Phil, I love those songs today. I ran out of that grave. Man, we're ready to have, we, we want to sing, we want to be singers of the songs. But we don't want to be livers of the life. A life submitted to Jesus. What did Jesus define? You want to be my disciple? Then you take up the cross, an instrument that you died upon, and follow me. What does that mean? That means death to you and your agenda. You're now a new creation with new desires. And you're allowing the Holy Spirit to rework your desires, to really to will and to do, it says in Philippians, the things that God has actually made you to do that was disrupted by sin. And, and this is what Paul, in his, his book to the um, Ephesians, he keeps come, coming back to this. You keep putting back on the old self. No, that self has been crucified. Live as unto the Lord. He says even in, maybe it's Romans 6, that that you would make the members of your body slaves to righteousness, instruments to righteousness, not slaves to sin anymore. That's, that, that, that stuff has, has died. And this is the struggle we live in because it's been okay for a very long time to be cultural Christians, to show up on Sundays and to give a little money, but our lives don't reflect the beauty and joy of a life submitted to Jesus in all things in our relationships, in our forgiveness, in, in every, every way. What does Paul even say in, in, in to the Corinthians? That we're going to eat unto the glory of God, everything we do unto the glory of God. This is why the church in the West doesn't see the power of God move. This is why we're dwindling at such a fast rate. We are talking about this this morning with the Jeff Grubbs and before, the, before the prayer this morning. You look at the countries where, commun where the, the communist countries where it's illegal to be a Christian, the church is literally thriving. They're seeing amazing things done and the power of God move in just incredible, indescribable ways. When's the last time you had one of those encounters? Because we don't position ourselves to take a step of faith, to follow him, to ask him to do these incredible things. Thirdly, and I know I got to wrap up. You can tell I have not preached in a long time. I'm sorry. Or I drank too much coffee this morning. Humility and boldness. The third sign. There's belief in worship. There's a step of faith. But then there's this combination of humility and boldness. Humility to be the antithesis of the Pharisees' arrogance and pride, this man, even as they're throwing these accusations at him and, you know, you're the sinner and born in utter sin, you get out of here. And he, doesn't, he doesn't fight back against them. There's just real humility when Jesus shows up and says, what do you think about this healing thing? What do you think about Jesus? He's like, I never met the man. Up to that point, he really didn't, he never laid eyes on him, didn't know who he was. Remember, he was blind when he put the mud pies on, he never saw him. And Jesus said, that's me. And he responds and he says, Lord, Master, I believe. In worship, there's this idea of humility and boldness. 
I love the boldness too. Even earlier in the passage, I think he's a true believer even before this. The boldness as he responds in boldness to tell the truth. I love the evangelism style here too. So many of us, man, we don't talk about what God's doing in our lives. One, because God's not doing anything in our lives because we're just apathetic to that. We're living our own life. But two, we're just not really that impressed with Jesus. This man, he hadn't even met Jesus yet. And look how bold he is every time they're asking about it. His, his invitational style of evangelism, just testimonial style was awesome. He just says, you know, I, man, I don't know all the things. Here's what I do know. I was blind, but now I see. This is the most incredible testimony style tool that we have in our belt to declare the glory of God to the people we work with. So many people will, will you know, you know, what if they ask me about stem cells or what if, what if they ask me, what if they ask me about evolution or what if they ask me about all the things? This man knew none of those things. I don't know any of that. Here's what I do know. I was blind. Now I see. Here's what I do know. God has saved my marriage. Here's what I do know. God has taken me from this selfish, self-righteous piece of poo and he's transforming me into the image of Jesus Christ himself. And I can't do that on my own. This is the work of God inside me. So I don't know the answers to all the things. But I know my story that I was blind, but now I see. This man's life was radically, radically changed by Jesus. His physical life was changed by the power of Jesus, but his spiritual life was altered by an encounter of the person of Jesus. And maybe this has happened in your life. Can you remember a time where you actually moved from death to life, from blindness to sight? You remember that? Sometimes it happens and a church this size, it happened a long time ago when we were kids and we just, we just lost the awe of that, of how God moves in such an incredible way. We've just, we've, just lost, we've just grown old and crusty and everything irritates us. Maybe this has happened to you where his love for you became the ultimate measure of your worth, not your performance. His love for you where you found the treasure hidden in the field and joyfully sold everything in the field because the treasure was everything you ever longed for. To the degree to which you worship will be the degree at which you really see. What group are you in? The spiritually confused? You're following Jesus, but you, you know, if we're real honest, there's a lot of areas that still need some work, of course. Maybe you would just resolve again to the word of God, to showing up. Listen, this is, why you being here is such a big deal, this pastor, not so that we have people in the room, but so you don't have these gigantic holes in your theology because you miss these important things that we talked about. Maybe the spiritually blind 
Maybe no one else would even really know that you're spiritually blind, but you know it. You've been playing religious games for a long time. And you have never seen the depravity of your sin and your need for the beautiful grace of Jesus. Maybe you're the spiritually enlightened. Just seeing God move in your life in an incredible way. After the word is preached, there's always a response. We're going to take communion here in a minute, but I want you to really wrestle with this before you partake. Maybe you would ask the Lord, and I would just ask everybody just to bow their heads right now. You just talk to God. Maybe there's a step of faith in front of you, and you're just going to ask him to give you the courage to take that step of faith. Maybe it's the worship piece. You've been worshiping yourself. It's time to get off the throne of your life and give Jesus his rightful place. Not just believing, but believing that leads to worship. Maybe it's boldness. You need to tell someone else what God's done in your life. You don't have to know all the things. I don't know all the things, but I I was blind and now I see. You don't have to be a member at our church to participate in communion, but if you're following Jesus, we invite you to participate when you're ready. Phil's going to lead us in some worship. I'll be in the back if you'd like to pray. God, can we see ourselves? Would you allow us this morning to see ourselves as you see us? so sinful our hearts so sinful that you couldn't even be near us as a holy and just God you had to be utterly separate yet so loved that you would leave the throne of heaven Jesus and come down to earth and walk alongside us and give yourself to us and die in our place on the cross of Calvary to pay the debt that our sin demanded. Not so we'd just feel better about ourselves, but to reunite us with God, to reconcile us, to give us a new heart and a new life, not one slaves to sin anymore, but a new identity as a son and daughter of God. What an incredible thing. Lord, forgive us for our apathy that that story, that beautiful story of the good news of Jesus falls on deaf ears and cold hearts. Lord, how can we sing about this great grace and and running out of the grave without being at moved on some level emotionally, remembering that very moment when you rescued us. Lord, I pray for us, our church. Lord, I pray that you would do something incredible in us. Lord, that we wouldn't play spiritual games, religious games, 
no posing and posturing in here, or that we could be real honest about the real things of life. Some people in here are struggling with some incredible hurt and pain, and they, they want somebody to blame. It's the effect of sin. Lord, would you remind them that you love them and you're with them, no matter how hard the days have been or how hard the days will get. Lord, we need you. Lord, our city needs you. Lord, our nation needs you. Lord, my family, we need you. Lord, I need you. Do this work in our faith family today. In Jesus' name, amen.